So we come to the Day of Atonement, and we're going to read from Leviticus chapter 16. The instruction to do it is in Leviticus 23, which is where all of our series comes from in the order they are shown um, in Leviticus 23, the Feast of the Trumpets last week, the Day of Atonement today. But the detail about the Day of Atonement is in Leviticus 16. So I'm going to read excerpts from this because it's way too long to read it all. So Leviticus 16, uh, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Verse 6, Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Verse 15, He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And finally, verse 20. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So how can I know that I'm forgiven? How can you know? How can we know that we are truly forgiven? It's a fundamental question in our relationship with God because our sin stands between us and God. How can I know that I'm truly forgiven? Can I really know full and free forgiveness. Well, today's feast, the Day of the Atonement, helps us to address that key question, and it points us to the reality and seriousness of sin, but also to the wonder of God's provision and forgiveness. How does it fit with last week? Well, last week we were thinking about the Feast of Trumpets with Carolyn. I think Richard even had some people blowing trumpets but he didn't blow his own, as I recall. Um, And uh, then we had the shofar. And where's uh, where's John? You you didn't bring the shofar today. 
Sadly not, sadly not. Anyway, and we heard from Karen that the, the initial call of the shofar is a call to reflection, a call to self-examination. And it's a preparation, that 10-day period between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement is a time of preparation for the Day of Atonement itself. Uh, a friend of mine who was in church last week, not a regular here, heard that we were doing all of this and sent me very helpfully a whole number of articles. I won't read you all of all of them because it was pages and pages long. But he sent this from Rabbi Sachs, published in the Wall Street Journal, which I think helps us to see how Jews today see these two things fitting together. He writes, The ten days of repentance are the holy of holies of Jewish time. They begin with Rosh Hashanah, I'll have you say that, uh, which was last week, the Feast of Trumpets, and culminate ten days later with Yom Kippur, our Day of Atonement. These days constitute a courtroom drama like no other. It begins with Rosh Hashanah, with the sounding of the shofar, the ram's horn, announcing that the court is in session. And as we say in prayer, on Rosh Hashanah it is written, and on Yom Kippur it is sealed, who will live and who will die. On Yom Kippur, the atmosphere reaches a peak of intensity in a day of fasting and prayer. We throw ourselves on the mercy of the court which is to say, on God himself. Write us, we say, in the book of life. And at the end of a long and wrenching day, we finish as we began ten days earlier with the sound of the ram's horn, this time not with tears and fears, but with cautious and yet confident hope. So the sounding of the trumpet acts as a bookend for this Day of Atonement. It prepares us for it in the lead-up to it, and it sounds a note of triumph at the end that God has made atonement and provided for us. But what is atonement? Some of you will be aware of this old definition, that it is at one meant. Atonement is how God makes it possible for us to be at one with Him. And therefore it answers the question with which we began, how can I know that I'm truly forgiven? But before we look at that in detail, I think there's a prior question which we need to address. We often think of the world as pendulum swings, don't we? So we swing politically. We may go from Boris Johnson to Jeremy Corbyn. That'd be quite a big swing. In Manchester, it's gone from United to City on the football field. Pendulums swing. I'm, I'm a Spurs man. Sorry about that, but uh, there we go. And of course, United, we did you a, a favour yesterday, we got a point off City. So uh, anyway, that's entirely irrelevant. So we have these pendulum swings which swing from side to side. And that also happens theologically in the way we view certain truths. Sometimes our emphasis is more on one side, sometimes our emphasis is more on the other. And I like to think of it in a way as uh, more of a seesaw than a pendulum. And uh, I've got a couple of seesaws for you based on the Alpha questions. Those of you who've done Alpha remember these. We're taught as leaders on Alpha never to teach, never to give direction, but to ask two simple questions. What do people think and what do people feel? Because some of us are primarily thinkers and secondarily feelers, and some of us are the other way around. 
So, how do we think about sin? Here's my first seesaw. On one side, we have the verse, the wages of sin is death. On the other side, we have the verse that we're not under law, but under grace. If we emphasize the first, then we're aware that this aspect of sin is deadly serious. It's enemy number one of our relationship with God. Unless it is dealt with, we cannot know God. On the other, if we're emphasizing more that we're not under law but under grace, there may be a danger, or or we may think to ourselves, well, Christians obsess about sin. Christians go on and on about sin. Sin, this, sin, that's always about sin. Never about freedom. Never about the fact that the price has been paid. And as someone once put it, it depends where we put the emphasis on the particular word. And the second has to do with how we feel about sin. You see, some of us here identify with the prophet Isaiah, and we go, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. I'm done. And others of us rejoice in the truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And unless I hold those in balance, if I balance on the one side, there's a danger that I will be plagued by guilt, that I'll never know God's forgiveness in my heart. However much anyone teaches about the cross, I'll never feel it in here and know it in here. And therefore, I'll be afraid of God. But if the weight is on the other side, there's an equal and opposite danger, the danger of presumption, the danger that we might sit light to sin. So the question is, where is the weight? Penelope and I uh, love walking together, and uh, we walked across France last summer, and we often walk in Italy. Uh, And there's one favorite walk we've done now three times, where about halfway through the walk, halfway through one day, there's a little village shop where we buy our lunch, and there's a children's playground with places where we sit. But one day we noticed there was also a seesaw there in the playground, and uh, we decided to have a go. We don't often, you know, age 65, you know, you don't often sit on a seesaw uh, and have a go, but we decided we'd have a go. Now, I have a distinct advantage when it comes to seesaws uh, with my wife, about a five stone advantage uh, as it so happens. So I can have all the fun. If I choose to use my weight and apply it, I can not only make sure my end goes down, I can make sure her end goes up and fast, which is half the fun to have her bouncing on the other end of the seesaw. But which way are we tilting? Which way currently in our own thinking and in the thinking of the church today is the seesaw tilting? And the answer will be different for thinkers and for feelers. You see, some of us are temperamentally woe is me people. Temperamentally, we're very self-critical. We beat ourselves up. And if there is too much emphasis on sin, we will get plagued by guilt. Others of us love Monopoly because of the get-out-of-jail-free card. And we think, you know, that's the Christian life for me. Jesus died on the cross. I've got my card in my back pocket. I can bring it out whenever I want. We have to know ourselves, and we have to hear the balance of the Day of Atonement, which part of this story we need to hear. The problem is that those of us who need to hear mostly that there is no condemnation will probably focus on woe is me and vice versa. So honestly, in your own heart, and for me in my own heart at the moment, what is your, what is my greatest danger? 
Is my greatest danger that I'm obsessed with sin and plagued by guilt? Or is my greatest danger that I sit light to sin and I presume upon God's forgiveness? Let's know our own hearts. But also, where are we in the church today? In my lifetime as a Christian, I became a Christian when I was 14 in 1969. Um, And uh, in my early Christian life, I think the balance was tilted towards the seriousness of sin. I think I was... I was raised to really feel like a miserable sinner, and, and you know, woe is me. You know, I had that quoted at me lots of times, and those of us who are older probably remember that. And then the, the balance shifted, particularly through the renewal movement, and we began to discover not only the truth of God's love, but the reality of God's love in our own hearts. And for me, in the mid-90s, that was a powerful experience, coming face-to-face afresh again with the extraordinary wonder of the Father's love that we sang about so beautifully. Thank you. One of my favorite songs. Uh, Just uh, a moment or two ago. Uh, But where is the balance now? Where is the balance in the church today? It's not my job to answer that question. My job is to ask that question and to teach us about the Day of Atonement and see whether it will help us answer the question. So let's move on then to the Day of Atonement itself. So the Day of Atonement points us to the reality and seriousness of sin. That's why it's there in the Bible. But also about the certainty and wonder of God's forgiveness. Now there are many different theories of the Atonement. I've been reading about some of them recently. But I'm not going to go into them today because that's not the subject today. came across a lovely verse when I was looking in Hebrews chapter 9 where a lot of the 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 parallels of the New Testament come, as we'll see in a moment, with the Day of Atonement. But uh, the writer says this in the second half of verse 5, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Isn't that a great verse for the Bible? We cannot discuss these things in detail now. I think probably most of us as preachers ought to have that written on our study walls. We'd have clearer sermons as a result. So, the Day of Atonement is basically the story of two goats. Uh, actually, it's the story of two goats and a bull, but the bull is for the priest. Uh, it's interesting that the priest needs a larger animal to make atonement for his sin than the people need for their sin. But uh, there's the sacrificial goat, as we'll see in a moment, and there's the scapegoat. The sacrificial goat who is killed and the scapegoat who's sent into the wilderness. You probably know the story of the uh, chicken and the pig who are in the uh, farmyard together and uh, the chicken says to the pig, you know, isn't it wonderful? We get to, uh, to bless our owner, the farmer, uh, so that he can enjoy his breakfast of bacon and eggs. And the pig says to the uh, chicken, it's all right for you. You make a contribution. I make a sacrifice. And we have the sacrificial goat, first of all. And for the sacrificial goat, as we see in uh, Leviticus 16, and it's probably helpful to have it open, There is the taking of life and the shedding of blood. Verse 15, he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. The taking of life and the shedding of blood. And the writer of the Hebrews tells us in chapter 9 
that the shedding of blood is essential because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And what we have here, therefore here in the, um, in the Day of Atonement is a foreshadowing of what would come with Jesus. You see, we have the shedding of blood of the goat, we have the sacrificial goat, but Jesus is the reality. The goat on the Day of Atonement is the shadow, and Jesus is the reality. Let me just read you a couple of those uh, verses. Don't bother to turn to them. You can look them up later if you'd like to in Hebrews chapter 9. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? So the sacrificial goat points and its blood points to the reality of the perfect sacrifice who is Jesus and the perfect blood, the blood of Jesus, as John puts it, that cleanses us from all sin. And note that little word, all, such a vital word. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Not some sin, not the sins that we can believe He could forgive us from, but from all sin. So Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, and Jesus, the perfect high priest. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So the Day of Atonement is repeated year after year. The sacrifices in the temple are repeated day after day. The high priest makes sacrifice first for himself and then for the people. But when Jesus comes, he has no need to make a sacrifice for himself, and his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for all time, once for all. The sacrificial goat foreshadowing the perfect sacrifice and the perfect high priest, Jesus. And then the scapegoat. There are a few things I want us to notice about the scapegoat, and the first is confession. So verse 21. The high priest is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. Quote from another of the uh, articles that my friend sent me. He says, the confession of sins is an integral part of the Yom Kippur liturgy. Once a year on Yom Kippur, we are forced to face our inner demons. We are forced to confront our own shortcomings and stand up to them. 
So confession is very much a part of the Day of Atonement. As we were hearing last week, the, the, the sounding of the ram's horn is a call to reflection. It's a call to self-examination. Uh, in um, uh, Ignatius' uh, teaching, he teaches his uh, disciples the examen, which is a daily self-examination, not just uh, with a view to confession, but of thanksgiving and positive things as well. But part of it is realistic self-examination. Our liturgy in the Church of England uh, points us uh, daily, if we say the morning office, um, which I haven't done as a regular thing, I have to say, uh, but weekly and traditionally, if we follow the liturgy, we say a confession of sin. Confession is part of what happens with the scapegoat. But then the bit I really uh, love is the separation. So we read in uh, verse 21, He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. And underneath that, if you can read it, one of my favorite um, verses, as far as the east is from the west, so far has the Lord uh, removed our, thank you, I was thinking, couldn't think of the verb, removed our transgressions from us. Obviously not just my favorite verse, but one of my favorite verses. You see, we know how far it is from north to south. I looked it up this morning. It's 8,595 miles from the North Pole to the South Pole. So we know how far it is from the north to the south. But how far is the east from the west? Infinitely far. There is no end in either way. That's how far the Lord has removed our transgressions from us. And that is pictured in the scapegoat. The sins of the people are confessed on the head of the goat, and the goat is sent out into the wilderness far away from the people to carry their sins away. And of course we know, supremely again, how that is done in Jesus. So confession, separation, and substitution. So there again in uh, verse 22, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place. I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but just again remembering that verse on which I was raised in my understanding of the cross of Jesus from Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. But the Lord, that is God in heaven, has laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity or sin of us all. So the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat. I must conclude. I wasn't quite sure what to call my conclusions, so I called them curried goat takeaways. I'm actually not into curry, although curry is apparently now the most popular. It's overtaken fish and chips. Did you know that? The most popular meal in England is now curry, not fish and chips, but I still prefer fish and chips. But there we go. That's probably because I'm 65. Uh, so what are our curried goat takeaways uh, from today? The first is the need to get the balance right. To get that balance right personally and as a church. Where do you feel in your own heart the balance is at the moment? Are you getting yourself down 
Are you focusing so much on woe is me that you fail to see that for freedom Christ has set us free? Or are you so keen on the freedom and the love of God in Christ that you actually sit too light to sin? Or are you in balance? Because the Bible teaches both. That's the great thing about the Bible. We're often told to hold on to true truths in tension. There's no resolution of that tension. We're meant to hold them in tension. So where are we personally? Where are we as a church? I think where we seem to have come to at the 10.30 is that we say a public confession when we have communion. I think we normally do that. Uh, The 9 o'clock, I think we normally have one uh, every Sunday. Uh, Normally, I think the leader does an informal confession at the 10.30. It's not my question to ask whether we've got the balance right. But the question the Day of Atonement asks us is, have we got the balance right? Let it ask the question and let us seek an answer. The second is the practice, practicing regular and meaningful confession in church and to one another. The Bible, the New Testament tells us to confess our sins to one another. Accountability as disciples of Christ is critical. I think for a long time I thought I could live without that. I think accountability is very, very important. We have people who could ask us difficult questions whether it's just good friends who we meet with to pray, whether it's in a home group, wherever it is, just having close Christian friends who can say to us, are you walking the walk or are you just talking the talk? And that's vitally important. And then, finally, living out of gratitude. You see, Paul was worried that in his teaching about the wonder of God's forgiveness, in his teaching about how there is full and complete redemption in Christ, that we might actually think, well, if this grace is so great, why don't I carry on sinning? And then the grace will be even bigger. And his resounding answer to the question, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound, is by no means. Rather, we are to live in holiness, we are to live the way God intended us to live, not out of fear of getting found out, but out of a desire to please God. And regular confession and regular remembrance of God's atonement for us in Jesus Christ will keep us in that right place. I want to finish, if I may, with a, um, an illustration I grew up with. And many of you will know this, um, but it is a way in which the cross was very first explained to me, how Jesus made atonement for us, how it's possible for us through the death of Jesus to be at one with God. And it's based on Isaiah 53. And the verse goes, you'll remember, um, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The illustration is that this Uh, book represents our sin, yours and mine. And this hand represents uh, us, and this hand represents Jesus on the cross. And uh, so this book represents our sin. And the, the verse says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That is, our sin is on us. And it blocks off any relationship we can have with God. It comes between us and God. 
But the verse goes on, the Lord has laid on him, that is on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That's why Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because suddenly our sin, not his, has come between him and his Father. And when he has borne that sin, he cries out, it is finished, and the resurrection proves that the price has been paid. But the wonder of Jesus' atonement is where that leaves us, free to have a relationship with God. And that is the beauty of the Day of Atonement, is that it reminds us not only of our sin and our need of confession, but of the wonder of God's atoning love shown to us in Jesus Christ. I remember sitting in a student's room in Durham in probably 1979, and I was an assistant missioner on a mission. There was a young man called George sitting in the room. And George had never seen anyone explain the cross before, and I did that illustration. And I remember looking at him and seeing, as it were, scales almost visibly removed from his eyes. And that night, George came to faith in Christ, because suddenly he understood how he could be at one with God. He confessed his sins, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And it may well be that there's someone here this morning who has never previously understood what Jesus did when he died on the cross. Never understood that actually the reason you don't know God is because there's something between you. But that Jesus has taken that something and that the way is now free for you to know God if you will put your trust in Jesus Christ. Most of us here will know that forgiveness and know that truth. We need reminders that we need to confess. We need reminders of what Jesus has done for us. But for some, maybe for the first time, as we pray a prayer in a moment, you can use that prayer to confess your sins to God and to ask for his forgiveness. The prayer we're going to use is the old prayer from the prayer book, um, Book of Common Prayer. And we're going to say this prayer together. We're going to do it slightly differently from usual. I'm going to say a line and then you're going to repeat the line, not because you can't read, because I'm sure you can read, but because I want us to hear the weight of these words, which Cranmer wrote in the Book of Common Prayer to help us to understand the seriousness of sin, but also the wonder and beauty of God's forgiveness. So will you pray with this with me? I will say one, uh, well, it's not quite one line, but you'll see how it goes, and then we'll repeat it together. Let's pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. 
We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. But we have done those things which we ought not to have done. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us. For thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare thou those who confess their faults. Spare thou those who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent. Restore those who are penitent. According to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. According to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life. That we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of thy holy name. Amen. Thy holy name. Amen.